Hi, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot. We've just launched Conta Radio, a raft of new, free podcasts examining international affairs, political economy, Scottish politics and much more are on their way. To mark the occasion, we are publishing some of the podcasts that were previously behind a paywall. With British capitalism in crisis and sliding down the international rankings, whatever happened to Scottish independence? In this episode, recorded immediately after Nicola Sturgeon's announcement of her new strategy for independence, we spoke to Jonathan Chaffee, author of the Independence Captured newsletter, about whether this strategy represents the dead end of its gradualist approach over recent years. Hello, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot. If you're listening to this podcast, that's because you are one of our subscribers at Patreon. And you make not only this Patreon-exclusive content possible, but everything that we do at Conta, from our articles and podcasts to public meetings and much else besides. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and extend the thanks of everyone at Conta for making what we do possible. Hi folks, uh, David Jameson here, editor of Contour.Scot, um, still suffering somewhat from COVID-19, so uh, please bear with me uh, on that. As we try and pick over the developments, it's, as we speak about 48 hours since Nicola Sturgeon's speech to Parliament, where she outlined uh, a plan, first to hold a, a referendum in October 2019, but if that doesn't get past the Supreme Court, the UK Supreme Court, then to for the SNP to run in the next general election on a one policy platform for Scottish independence and what Nicholas Sturgeon has described as a de facto referendum. Uh, and I'm joined to talk about this with the author of the Independence Captured newsletter, Jonathan Shafi. Thanks very much for joining us, Jonathan. Hello, just to say uh, this has been done via Zoom, so I'm not in close proximity to, to David, obviously has COVID, and I hope you are uh, bearing up okay. Uh, thanks very much, but I, I think, I don't know if it's COVID brain fog, but I feel like it's taken me a couple of days for the pennies start to start to drop around this in a way, Um because I was quite, I was a bit taken aback when when this was announced. Because Nicholas Sturgeon and leaders of the SNP in general have always maintained that there is no Plan B, as as this was once referred to, this idea of turning a general election into a referendum if we're denied a referendum. Um, but since then, I've started to try and work through some of the implications of all this. And uh, to be honest, uh, I'm seeing a lot of problems. Um, so, Jonathan, first of all, let's let's get this first point out of the way. I'm still very much resolved that there's not going to be an October 2023 independence referendum. I mean, are we still quite clear on that? Yeah, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon herself all but says that in the statement. Uh, you know, on the one hand, here's this date. Uh, on the other hand, this could all be torpedoed by legal developments and so on, which... Uh, which, yeah, I mean, I, I assume it will be. Um, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. I can't see the UK government giving any consent or any agreement uh, to such a process, uh, come what may. So 
No, I also think, by the way, that the Tories are incentivised by the SNP's so-called Plan B, um, because uh, in that kind of election, Boris Johnson or whoever the Tory leader is, uh, being able to say that they will definitively lock the SNP out, uh, whereas maybe Keir Starmer might be reliant on some of their votes, uh, might be a, a stronger play than people might think. So, so no, I think that there isn't a, a prospect of a referendum next year, and, and Nicola uh, pretty much accepted that. Yes. I mean, I don't think you announce Plan B in that sort of way unless you're really, you know, if you're really, really gunning for Plan A, you don't say, but, you know, if the government doesn't want to go out with it, go along with that, that's fine. Uh, we'll just do it, do it another way. So the timing of that strongly implies, as well as a host of other factors imply that it's not going to happen 16 months from now, including the fact that there's no campaign, no prospectus except for the Growth Commission. There's just no mood around it. And there's also a you know, people don't want a referendum next year, we know from polling. So there's lots of reasons to think that that Plan A is already moving out the window, moving out of the frame of the debate, indeed. But that leaves us with this peculiar de facto referendum proposal. Um, a couple of points about this before you, I bring you in, Jonathan. First of all, it landed in a very mess, messy fashion. So the day after the, this announcement, John Swinney went on BBC Radio, where he said that um, a majority of seats for the Scottish National Party in this de facto referendum would mean independence. The, which is, by the way, that is the policy. It's not like a protest vote, or it's not like a. It's not to say, well, this gives us another mandate. We've had loads of mandates. Nicholas Sturgeon was very clear. This general election would lead to independence, right? But he seemed to think that this would be a majority of SNP seats. He later corrected himself the same day, the same morning on Twitter, by saying, no, 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 I was wrong. It's, uh, I misheard. It's a majority of votes, which is a very, very different proposition because of the last three general elections, the SNP did narrowly win the 2015 vote um, by a majority, by popular vote. And then it lost 2017 quite badly in terms of popular vote. And then it lost 2019 somewhat less badly by, by popular vote. So it's much more difficult. But why didn't Swinney know this? He's one of the leading ministers in the government. Angus Robertson didn't seem to know either, and he's supposed to be the heir apparent to Nicola Sturgeon. The Greens certainly didn't know about this. We know that because Lorna Slater herself went on BBC Radio and openly said she hadn't had, she didn't know about any of this. They found out when we found out when this proposal was read out in the Parliament. So that's just a bit of context. Jonathan, what is going on here? Well, Plan B is something that, <clears throat> to be honest, I've never given a great deal of thought to. It is actually, believe it or not, the one area around independent strategy where in years gone by, I've actually agreed largely with the SNP leadership, but for maybe different reasons. So the point about it is that as soon as you uh, say uh, here's our plan B, you lose a lot of leverage because by saying plan B up front, you're already kind of accepting that your, uh, that your primary objective of securing a referendum is either unlikely um, or, is, or is not going to be uh, met in the, the timescale or whatever it might be. 
But my main opposition to the idea of Plan B has generally speaking been around the idea that as soon as you do that, the entire question of independence becomes honed around, harnessed around the SNP. It becomes completely funneled into going to the ballot box and voting for the SNP. Now, that is a completely different uh, situation than we had, obviously, in 2014, where there was a kind of movement of movements, all kinds of different organisations and so on and so forth, um, involved in getting as many people as they possibly could to go and vote yes for myriad reasons, but united along some basic principles about democracy or whatever it might be. That's now out the window and people need to be absolutely clear about this. That is now gone and finished because what the SNP have done by declaring at this stage, something they didn't need to do, this idea of a general election leading towards independence is that they have made every single bit of independence activity that takes place between now and then, uh, in, a, in effect, a proxy for building uh, a vote for the SNP. Now, that leaves uh, other parties and organisations in uh, somewhat difficult positions. Uh, we don't exactly know what the Greens will do, for example. Um, now, the, 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 the stipulation is that, uh, as far as we know, is that this won't be a majority of seats, this will be a majority of the popular vote. Well, does that mean a combination of all pro-independence supporting parties? Could you have a situation where the popular vote is uh, won, uh, so to speak, by the pro-independence side, um, even though there's a loss uh, comparatively in SNP seats? Maybe that's unlikely, but these are all kinds of, uh, sort of formulations you need to think through. But the key point is that this harnesses the entire question to the SNP, uh, in my view, at the expense of the movement, which is why I've never been in favour of it. Just to, to end on this, uh, people sometimes say, OK, what's your alternative? Um, I wrote uh, today in the, the newsletter that my alternative, not just my alternative, but lots of people have been saying that we needed to have a broad uh, campaign uh, involving social forces well beyond the SNP, making a simple argument in favour of self-determination, that that kind of pressure campaign allowed for there to be a very diverse movement, one with lots of different views within it, uh, one with the potential to have more radical outcomes than simply going and voting SNP. That's now off the agenda, I'm afraid. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it might well be said one day that um, the SNP and perhaps particularly Nicola Sturgeon's um, sort of native hostility to extra parliamentary politics led us inexorably in this direction. Um, because the sort of campaign you're talking about, I mean, that's, it's never, it's never been, I mean, it was in 2014, there was a huge amount of kind of civic and extra parliamentary activity. Since then, the movement narrowed down increasingly to the SNP's electoral uh, victories, which were on their own very impressive. Um, but it's not like Catalonia, where there's always been this attitude of mass mobilisation. There's always been a tradition and a culture of mass mobilisation and an attitude that the electoral arena is only one in several uh, arenas. 
in the fight for national independence. And of course, the Catalans don't just do big street mobilizations and strikes and occupations. They also have a huge cultural front and all this kind of stuff. And that's never so much been part of the, the Scottish movement. And it seems to me now like that's really cornered the movement and narrowed it into this very peculiar situation. But as you say, this all this stuff about a yes movement, right? I mean, up until relatively recently, I was a bit fed up of hearing about the yes movement because, of course, we didn't even know what the words in a referendum would be. But that whole conception, I mean, the yes movement has been benched, right? I mean, um, because now it's the SNP and it's our way or the highway. And and presumably, I mean, it's there's so many questions here that haven't been answered, right? Like, what is the prospectus for independence that you'll be voting on when you vote for the SNP in 2024 or whenever the general election is? Presumably, it's their growth commission prospectus. At the moment, we don't know. But under those circumstances, you're being asked to make a lot of different choices all at once in one general election, which is serving as an impromptu de facto referendum. Um, And that seems to to me to be a very peculiar uh, demand to thrust upon an an electorate. Yeah, I mean, I'd uh, written a few weeks back about this idea of, you know, a yes campaign. And my kind of thinking at the time was, look, we don't know what the question might be. Uh, We think that uh, we have to make a sort of broader appeal because lots of people who weren't part of 2014 don't necessarily resonate just with the word yes or whatever else. But now we're in a situation where the reality is that given that a legal referendum next year is uh, highly unlikely, people might as well just put up SNP placards. Um, because that's the only route which has been unlocked, so to speak, by the First Minister. But it's also worth saying that that vote, no one believes, uh, by the way, no one believes that even uh, in a victorious outcome of the next general election, uh, that that would uh, lead towards independence negotiations. It has absolutely zero standing. It would have zero standing with the European Union, with any number of international institutions. It would be frankly laughed out uh, by whoever was in Westminster, whether that was Keir Starmer or Boris Johnson or whoever the Tory leader is. And at the same time as that, it would be, I think, uh, I think it would lack a durable, a lasting legitimacy, even domestically, even within the Scottish political scene. What it might do, though, is is provide another platform for the the SNP to continue to make the argument for independence. Uh, But don't be under any illusions. A a vote in a general election, uh, no matter it being victorious, is is not going to deliver in and of itself uh, direct independence negotiations. That's just not uh, going to happen. And the, the SNP leadership know this. Uh, Not only that, leading figures within the SNP uh, in years gone by have been absolutely, uh, I mean, they have been in the strongest possible terms opposed to this kind of Plan B uh, action because they don't believe it will ever be recognised as being valid in the way that the First Minister talked about. So all of those comments will be recycled uh, and used against them. So here we have to start to navigate 
the reasons why the SNP have chosen this particular route. And there, I think there are some quite interesting dynamics that we can begin to get into. Yeah, I mean, this is another thought that I've had is that the SNP can, in a sense, only lose this. Um, first of all, it's, it, I mean, who knows, right, how significant the momentum Sturgeon could build behind this de facto referendum idea. Perhaps it, it's sheer sort of peculiarity might help build momentum for it, right? Because this is deeply unusual in, in British political history, uh, this sort of event. Maybe that will create momentum. Maybe it'll create a fanfare. But even with all that, it would be extremely difficult to reproduce an, uh, a, a, a breakthrough like 2015. Um, the SNP in those days had so much momentum behind them. They had... Uh, they were really pushed into that by a big mass movement, right? Which was still mobilized at that time. People forget that the, the energy of that movement in those days was still intense. Uh, this is some years hence and, and the, that momentum is simply not there anymore. Um, so first of all, it's going to be a big hurdle to leap uh, to, to get over this um uh, to, to, to actually win it. But even if they, if, if they could then win it, yeah, as you say, it's got no legitimacy anywhere. And building legitimacy around it's going to be impossible. I mean, surely Boris Johnson or whoever can just shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's not a referendum. It just yeah, doesn't, I mean, doesn't it, do anything. It, it's, not, it's not a referendum. I mean, I, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. I mean, um, Professor James Mitchell made a, uh, a comment which has been going around uh, social media quite quite a bit, but obviously someone with a, you know a huge degree of knowledge, not just about a policy development and elections and all the rest of it, but also about charting the national question in Scotland, right? So there's all the kind of technical, academic, uh, institutional uh, problems that come with this idea that voting in a general election can in any way start the process of direct negotiations about independence and can be recognised anywhere uh, beyond beyond uh, beyond Scotland. But then then there's there's the other element here, which is where you know I someone like myself and and, and you uh, and, and others that, that that we've been working with over the years would have more knowledge of, and that's how you mobilise in a referendum. Because one thing that we were pretty good at. Was, was doing that, was mobilising hundreds, sometimes thousands of people um, around inspiring ideas uh, and, and making people aware of their voting rights. Many people, remember, voted in the referendum for the first time in their lives because they felt it would make a real difference. Now here, uh, there's huge challenges. First of all, uh, there's all the obvious stuff about you lack that kind of breadth of movement. Uh, because it's all being funneled into the SNP, presumably. Uh, the second uh, element, or another important element to think about here, is the fact that you will not have the votes of uh, anyone under uh, the age of 18, um, uh, so 16 and 17 year olds, who we know have a preponderance towards supporting independence, um, will, will not be eligible um, to vote. Um, you will then have all of the issues that come with what exactly the prospectus is. Because in a referendum scenario, you can kind of get away with this idea of, 
well, maybe you disagree with the SNP's perspectives, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't vote yes for independence, because then you can have your voice heard and you can be part of a process and put forward your own ideas and so, so on and so forth. That element is completely removed because you're not voting for independence. You're voting for the SNP, okay? And that means you are voting very directly for the prospectus of the SNP, which, in my view, much of it is unsupportable. So there are all these kinds of uh, quite difficult problems uh, that start uh, to emerge. Uh, remember, I mean, one of the, the references I made in the uh, in, in, in the most recent article was about Pete Wishart, who has been a very outspoken critic against a uh, Plan B. But I mean, he's in a constituency where he went into the 2019 election with a, a majority of just 21 votes. He had to, even in those circumstances, appeal to the Greens to stand down. So I'm sure that kind of dynamic will take place. And I'd be interested to find out, and if there's any Greens who are, who are listening, I mean, were you informed of any of this kind of strategy, because it seems to me, certainly according to Lorna Slater, didn't appear to be briefed on it at all. Neither did Angus Robertson, as you point out, and John Swinney had to correct his comments after saying that it would only require a majority of MPs and not a majority of the popular vote. So there are lots of dilemmas here and lots of issues that people have to think through. And this is why I'm very unconvinced that this is a strategy that is, a, that is a really well thought out and functional strategy. When it comes to winning independence, that doesn't mean that there aren't potential positive outcomes for the SNP and specifically for the SNP leadership. Well, elaborate that thought. I mean, what, what are the good outcomes for this for the SNP and the SNP leadership? I mean, is it possible, is it possible that Nicholas Sturgeon's on the way out here? So, first of all, I think it's worth saying, look, I suppose our basic appraisal of things was the following, that what you would have was uh, the SNP putting forward some kind of bill, going through some kind of legal process, that being rebuffed, okay? And then the SNP then having the ability to say, we need to, we need a further mandate uh, and say uh, we are being, uh, you know, our, our democracy is under attack by, by those in Westminster who won't let us have our say, right? simple and effective and also you have to sort of marry into that analysis that if you look at the polling evidence if you look at um you know how enthusiastic people are for a referendum next year there's no real evidence to suggest that uh, there's an overwhelming enthusiasm for it to happen even among large sections of independence supporters so they're not under any particular pressure should be noted as well that rival independence parties, uh, for example, ALBA, for you know, looking at their uh, track record, they're a party who are demanding uh, far more sort of uh, robust, muscular action around uh, independence. Uh, but their, their vote, uh, you know, and there's lots of reasons for it, but their vote was, 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 was relatively, was very insignificant. So they're under no real pressure in that regard. So what I think this does do is a couple of things, right? First of all, it does what we've already outlined. It makes sure that the entirety of the independence cause is funneled through the SNP. So any sense that there might be a lack of control or a loss of control in the way that happened in 2014, where this movement spiralled outside of the remit of Yes Scotland and of the SNP, that is effectively nullified because in the end, it all has to come back to the SNP. That could be important to the SNP leadership. 
Secondly, it nullifies any internal uh, problems that they might have around independent strategy. Um, it nullifies uh, sort of problematic areas of fragmentation because it forces unity behind the SNP leadership, even among the more irreverent uh, elements, okay? Then I think you've got the question of what is the makeup of the next uh, parliament, the outcome of the next general election. If you read around the Tory press, uh, what you'll find is that Tory special advisors, commentators, those sorts of people, they're not so concerned about Labour winning an outright majority, but what they are seriously concerned about, gravely concerned about, is the idea that there is an anti-Tory majority, that there is the possibility of the Lib Dems, of Labour and of the Greens coming together with enough votes in the parliament to lock the Tories out of power. Now, the SNP would be part of that dynamic. They would have to make some kind of decision as to whether or not they're going to use their votes to um, uh, lock out Boris Johnson by supporting or anointing or being part of anointing Keir Starmer to, uh, to become prime minister. And that I think would be their only, only option at that, at that stage. Now, in that context, they need to have something to say about the national question because the whole complexion, the whole political terrain around the meaning of the national question will change if the Tories are not in power because that has been the setting which the independence movement in its modern form has been so used to. So the SNP need to reframe in that sense and they do so by going into that kind of scenario with, they hope, uh, a strong mandate that says there's big support for independence we want uh, to be taken seriously about this question. They get to differentiate themselves from the Labour Party and from Westminster, and they get to reframe independence for a new era, for a new period in which the Tories are not in power. So that could also be part of it. Sort of continuing that thought, what are the potential wider ramifications? You touched on a couple for British politics. Of course, people might remember in the 2015 election, um, the Tories ran what was widely appraised to be a successful campaign um, on the theme that Ed Miliband would be in the pocket of Alex Salmond, who in those days was the most identifiable leader of Scottish nationalism, uh, that, that the Westminster Parliament would become puppets uh, of the Scots. Now, obviously, time has moved on since then. But, I mean, couldn't a campaign as audacious as this appears to be, really galvanise that message again. I mean, I wonder what people like Keir Starmer are thinking looking at this proposal. It could. Um, I think that the Tories are incentivised by uh, this idea of a plan B. Uh, they might be able to uh, conceive of some uh, important kind of uh, lines or an orientation around this, uh, ar around the shape of the election in, in Scotland and how they might draw that into a kind of wider uh, discussion that reinforces their position with, within the election. Uh, as, of course, as I point out in the article as well, that uh, the SNP gets to have a, a number of potential mm -hmm. options here. I mean, one is that if Keir Starmer is, is Prime Minister, well, OK, they, they've reframed themselves. Um, but if, if the Tories win, uh, the SNP get to go back to the kind of holding pattern uh, that we have become used to. Um, but they have also placated 
uh, more radical elements uh, within their own base who want action on independence. They say, well, you've had plan B, that's what you asked for, that's what we've delivered. Uh, you know, what else would you like us uh, to have done? We now need to keep fighting against the Tories who are, who are depressing the, uh, the possibility of a democratic outcome to the, to the national question, whose side are you on? So, so they shore that all up well. And suddenly you start to paint a picture where if Nicola Sturgeon did want to, to leave the scene, well, what would she have? She'd have, um, this is if it's all going well, she'd have the SNP uh, with a kind of new frame for a new uh, era, uh, but her having taken the SNP to that point, she could point towards, in her view, uh, tangible progress, that she did everything she could. Her political opponents, uh, more proximate political opponents in terms of the nationalist scene in Scottish politics, are uh, all but vaporised politically, and she gets to leave the party in, the, in that kind of shape to a successor uh, which uh, we can assume uh, will be uh, will be gerrymandered into place in the way that political parties uh, are, are very good at. So that uh, is certainly uh, part of this discussion, that here is an exit plan, a viable exit plan for the First Minister. Uh, should say as well that, let's say the election doesn't go well, uh, she still gets the same exit plan. Um, it's just that it's slightly less triumphant, uh, but she's still done everything she possibly could uh, and, and so on. Now, I don't believe for a second that this is everything that possibly could have been done. As I stress, we should have had much more leading to this point. We should have had that sense of there being a wide, a broad uh, social movement with civic Scotland, with broad sections of Scottish society involved, united around this idea of self-determination. But the navigation of the SNP leadership, the way they have approached the national question with this constant feeling of stop and start and uh, unsure about where it goes next and is it actually going to go anywhere at all, has made the conditions for building that kind of movement extremely difficult indeed. And that again comes back to the SNP HQ and the SNP leadership wanting to have total control over the independence movement. And just lastly, just to say about this, David, one of the things that we say time and time again is that 2014 was not just a warning shot, was not just a shock to the British establishment, it was also to the Scottish establishment. And they want to ensure that that kind of event doesn't take place ever again. And one of the ways that they can ensure it doesn't is by harnessing the whole of the question, again, the whole of the question around going and voting for the SNP, and that's what they've done. Yeah, as as we as I often say uh, in these sorts of conversations, that it's always worth bearing in mind that the SNP, then led by Alex Salmon, tried to avoid a binary referendum in 2014. They wanted a three-option referendum, which would have galvanised the Scottish establishment around the Devo Max vote that, would almost certainly have carried a majority of support in the country, or is widely thought to, to that it would have carried the majority in the country. So, as you say, it's this is kind of the genie being stuffed back into the the bottle again. Um, where does that leave, you know, people like us who were on the radical left wing of the independence movement in 2014? Uh, are we going to get dragooned out to? Uh, march down to the polling uh, offices to to vote and you know if if 
if that was, I'm not saying your choice, I'm saying if that was the if that was the kind of pragmatic choice of someone who saw themselves as on the left of the independence movement, um, what on earth do you do before that? Are you out chapping doors for the SNP? Uh, are you accepting whatever proposals they are making, uh, you know, through Scottish government white papers and so on, ahead of this general election vote? Well, I mean, look, um, I spent a lot of time speaking to SNP members um, and I have a, a huge uh, level of respect for, for many, many uh, SNP members and I've become uh, actually very fond of, of, of the party membership, uh, having not engaged with them before the uh, 2014 referendum in any great way. Um, so uh, I understand the, uh, you know, the, the way that they might be feeling at the moment and, and, and how they want to push forward and all the rest. Of it. And I respect that as well. But, you know, for someone like me, for someone like you, we are also duty bound to put forward some kind of analysis, some kind of framework, uh, which comes from a, a socialist perspective. And here I'll be quite specific. You see, while all this is going on, while there's this huge compunction, this huge drive that's hardwired in towards uh, the SNP and voting SNP, we've also had at the same time the SNP and the Greens vote against things like a rent freeze in the Scottish Parliament. We also have at the same time, over the coming year, uh, it's going to be the case that 30 to 40,000 public sector workers will lose their job as a direct result not of SNP managerialism or anything like that, but actually of a hard-nosed economic liberalism. And in those kinds of conditions, it's impossible, absolutely impossible, to give the SNP a free pass. It's doubly impossible because you know that even if the SNP strategy ends up in a victory at the general election, that will not by extension automatically lead to direct negotiations about independence. So what we have to do, I think, is we have to be clear about what kind of process is taking on, uh, the, what kind of form, sorry, this uh, process is taking on uh, around the whole question of independence. We need to maintain uh, and develop organization around some of the big class questions that are coming up. And at the same time, we have to maintain a principled stand in favor of self-determination. I want to see in Scotland a referendum. I want to see in Scotland the Scottish people actually having the power to decide their own destiny. I want to see, unlike the Growth Commission, the institutions that would allow for a real sovereign Scottish state to emerge with full democracy and with real power uh, driven towards people, their communities and their workplaces. I want to see independence. No one should... Uh, you know, no one should forget that. Yes, very critical of the SNP leadership, but as the weeks and months unfold, I hope more people will start to realise why. And once we get into that kind of conversation, which is clear, which is honest, which is robust, then we're in a position to start thinking about what we can actually do strategically to intervene in a way that takes forward the question of self-determination outside of the orbit of the SNP, at the same time as maintaining and building the organisations required that can, that can take on the major class questions of the moment, given that we're going through a major economic crisis.
Okay, Jonathan, uh, thanks very much for all your thoughts on that. Uh, a lot to chew over. Uh, I have to say I'm still relatively confused by the situation and uh, and what all these various sort of, uh, what all the various implications are for this uh, direction of travel. Um, but if you uh, in the audience uh, are subscribers and so on, have any thoughts, you can always pitch them to editor at contour.scot leave a message uh, below this discussion if you think you've got an insight into anything else that might be going on here. Uh, and we look forward to going into deeper depth on all these questions and more in the coming days, weeks, months. Speak to you all again soon.